0: We have two problems when it comes to the mental health and illness. We have too much mental illness, but we sure do not have enough mental health. And they are both big problems. And when it comes to prevalence, in terms of the total amount of the world's population, the bigger problem is the absence of good mental health. And if we don't deal with that, guess what? 2030 will come along. The World Health Organization, WHO, will pat itself on the back, and I will be depressed as hell because a prediction that didn't need to come true came true because we didn't do anything different.
1: This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. In the previous episode, Linda, Gordon, and LaShawn spoke with Dr. Corey Keyes, a distinguished full professor of sociology at Emory University, about positive psychology, the burden of mental illness, and some important distinctions between mental health and mental illness. In the second and final part of the discussion, Dr. Keyes remains to explain the two continuum model of mental health and illness, the concepts of flourishing and languishing, and the urgent need to promote positive mental health. This is where they left off.
2: Dr. Keys, it sounds like this lack of understanding has created a disconnect in a way you know in terms of mental illness, the idea that treating mental illness um, solves a problem, right So this um, lack of understanding of the two continuum model um, influences how you know put the dollars and where policymakers decide to implement policies. So then instead of seeking ways to enhance positive mental health, we're only looking for ways to alleviate the negative, and by doing that, we miss a lot. So can you tell us about how this approach has led us to not making a collective impact, or are we making an impact?
0: Well, Gordon, your point is, is the million-dollar question, and, and this is the question of, of you need a diagnosis and a code when it comes to something having to do with mental health and illness in order to get insurers to reimburse healthcare providers. And it's it wouldn't be a stretch at this point to be able to expand um, what could be diagnosable um, and this is one reason I have been very medical and psychiatric in the way I've approached diagnosing I use the word diagnosis of positive mental health and I got a lot of flack from positive psychology but I was, I was being very, very deliberate. I want, as I like to say, psychiatry had already built a garage, a nice big garage with a lot of nice tools in it. And I was gonna back my truck right back into the same garage psychiatry built so they couldn't kick us out. And so we approach diagnosing mental health, positive mental health in the same way that they go about asking questions and diagnosing depression. So it's just a matter of time in getting legislative support and uh, individuals who, who have familial experiences or experiences themselves with losing people due not to mental illness, but to languishing or the absence of good mental health, to champion a payment system that expands the scope of what is um, when is the time to act? And for me, this is why I take a public health, even if people are flourishing, you want to be giving them attention and and help um, maintaining that because data show the first loss of it, three, four-fold increase in risks for suicide and depression. So that's the magic bullet right there. If we can somehow get a healthcare system and an insurance system that reimburses evidence-based, we need a lot more evidence-based, but evidence-based approaches to promoting positive mental health. I think we could begin to make some progress in reducing the overall prevalence of mental illnesses in the world, as well as the burden of it.
2: That's a great description. And we did touch on the... Two continuum model for mental health and mental illness um, throughout the conversation so far, but I wanted to hone in on it a little bit more. So, for those who might not have heard about the mental health continuum or two continuum model, can you just set that up for us a little bit about, um, you know, what does two continuum even mean? Um, talk us through, you know, the different quadrants in there. Just let us know um, how. Just to provide a paint a visual for what that looks like for
0: us. Sure. Sure, imagine, imagine it's a very simple two by two table mm. graphic. So there's one one line going, as I call it, from north to south. Mm-hmm. And that's the mental health continuum, the positive mental health and at, 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 at the very north of that dimension is flourishing. And as you go down that continuum, you move from flourishing to moderate, to all the way down to the bottom where you have literally the absence of the positive stuff, which I call languishing. So that's the first continuum in the first dimension. Then there's a dimension going from west to east, cutting through across from the north to south dimension. And at the very west is, um, a diagnosable clinical disorder, you, you fully meet the criteria. And, and on the very far east is that you, you don't have any of the symptoms of what would constitute a clinical diagnosis in the DSM. And if, the way to look at it now from going, traveling from east to west, as soon as you pass that north-south dimension, you fall over on the left side, you have some clinical mental disorder, but now imagine you have a clinical disorder, but um, you go from South all the way up to North. If you're all the way at the bottom South and you you fall on the far left side, you are languishing with a mental disorder, which is not good because the one of the important implications of the two continue model is that your level of good mental health will determine how well you are able to function with a mental disorder so if you start to move up uh, into the middle where you have moderate mental health with a mental disorder you will do far much far better with that mental disorder and we have plenty of data to back this up than if you are languishing and believe it or not it's it, there are some people who have a mental disorder who also meet the criteria for flourishing and they function far better than the people with moderate or languishing mental health. Now, if you were to look at the prevalence of people who are flourishing with a mental disorder, it's it's lows, it's between two to maybe 4% of any roughly a population. And the biggest category of people who fall on the left side with a mental disorder have a mental disorder, but they're in the middle, they have moderate. And that's roughly sub- eight to 10% of any population with a mental disorder. And then thankfully it's rare, but it's still two to 3% will be completely languishing with a mental disorder. And so the vast majority of studies show that in any given population, um, the most common combination is you have a mental disorder like depression, but you have at least moderate mental health. And that's far better than if you're languishing, but it's, of course, far better if you're flourishing with a mental disorder. But then, let's just assume you you fall over on the right-hand side of these two dimensions. That means you're free of a mental disorder. The implication is that most people who, who are free of a mental disorder will not meet the criteria for flourishing. So most people in most populations are free of a mental disorder. And everyone's walking around, at least in the traditional healthcare system and biomedical model, saying, wow, isn't that great? Look at how many people are mentally healthy. And and I look at my data and say, well, no, they're not. Yes, they're free of a mental disorder, but they're not flourishing. So roughly, um, there's huge variation by country. So like imagine in, in the US, a college student population, about just under 50% are free of a mental disorder and are flourishing. Uh, 35% are free of mental disorder, but they're not flourishing.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then the rest of them are, are in some level of positive mental health, but they meet the criteria for a mental disorder. Now, if you look at the US adult population, The biggest category of people are free of mental disorder, but they're not flourishing. The vast majority of the U.S. adult population is free of a mental disorder, right? In any given year, if you look at, for instance, epidemiological studies, and this is generous, I'm really rounding up, no more than 25% of the adult population will meet the criteria for any mental disorder. And they assume the other 75% are mentally healthy. No. Right. 40, about 40, sometimes 50% are not flourishing. Why does that matter? Because if you're flourishing and free of a mental disorder, you have the lowest risk of falling on the left-hand side. But if you're not Mm -hmm. flourishing and not mentally ill, your risk of ending up on the wrong side of that continuum model on the left-hand side is dramatically high
2: Mm -hmm. so flourishing is a protecting factor to experiencing a mental illness
0: yes and a huge risk that is going unobserved by public health systems they're doing nothing about it is in many cases the largest group of people in their country they're free of a mental disorder they're not flourishing and they get no attention and then we wonder why we never reduce the prevalence of mental illnesses in our population because we're not acting soon enough.
3: Our model doesn't catch these people because we only diagnose for illness. So we can't Eggs. prevent because we don't know how to diagnose for flourishing.
0: We do. Yeah, we do. Well, we we do, Linda, but we, um, I must say, having been doing this since 1995, it, 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 I think we're now at a point where the genie is starting to come out of the bottle, and you can't put it back ah, in. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's starting. Well, this is exciting. Then it and the the what the worst case scenario will be that we'll get into a zero sum uh, struggle with mm. the medical establishment, especially the mental illness establishment, which will assume. That if we put dollars into promotion, we don't care about people with mental illness because everyone with mental illness and I'm one of them you could argue, well, you don't fund our programs enough. And that's, oh, that's an argument that will be a, a losing battle. Right.
2: It also assumes that you cannot enhance... Bring someone who has um, experiencing a mental illness to flourishing, and that the only way to treat those was through medication and and, you know that kind of treatment.
0: Yes, and there's even good evidence. I would encourage uh, um, listeners. uh, There's a a book entitled "The Anatomy of an Epidemic," and the last Mm -hmm. the author's name is Whitaker, and he reviews evidence very strong body of evidence showing that for the vast majority of people with things like schizophrenia, anxiety disorder, and depression, they would have been better off because the people who were never put on medications in any of those three categories of mental disorders have better long-term outcomes than those who were put on medications initially Now, it takes two to five years, but once you, you, there is such a thing, I'm going to use the word natural advisedly, but there is a natural form of recovery that with the help of your community, your workplace, your family, that with time, we recover and we stay recovered and far more productive than if we are put on medication. And in fact, Whitaker starts his book by showing the irony of since 1987, which is considered the dawn of modern biological psychiatry, because that's when Prozac went on the market, that Social Security uh, disability income claims have been increasing for people who have mental illnesses like depression, and are under treatment, increasing, not decreasing. People on modern medications for mental disorders, their disability isn't going down, it's going up. Uh Now that I I know some of our listeners are gonna go, oh my God, I'm on medication. What am I doing? Because when I teach this to my students at (laughs) Emory, boom. And I tell them, well, I'm on that too. But be patient, this is is the story. The sordid story of medications for mental illness is not one medication was ever created with an understanding of the underlying pathophysiological cause. Every medication was created by observing side effects of medications mm-hmm. and procedures that were designed for something other than mental illness. If you read Whitaker's book, you will read the, yes. That to be a patient with mental illness and to think that this is how they've approached the best available treatments for people like me and my students. And by families. accident. Yes. By sheer accident. And where did yeah. you come up with the, the chemical imbalance theory? Oh, Psychopharmacology, trying to understand how these wow. medications work. There's no evidence whatsoever for the chemical imbalance theory. Wow. None, whatsoever. Now, why do we still believe it? Because when you put people on these medications, what does it do? It changes levels of dopamine, serotonin, and, and right? And, and so they assumed, well, that must be the, people must have an imbalance. Well, no. The medication creates changes and, and creates imbalances. What? 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 A backwards way to treat something as serious as mental illness. That's so backwards. And so, if people want to argue that we don't have a better approach, I say we've got a way better approach than reasoning backwards to causation and giving thousands and millions of people medications based on a theory that doesn't hold water right now we could be out there promoting and protecting flourishing right now in our kids in our communities show me where the political will is and the courage and and uh, we'll get it done because that's what families want That's what educators want that's what i want who doesn't want a, that life so Show me the courage of political leadership and we'll get this done.
4: Right. And I mean, I'm, I'm so intrigued by flourishing specifically because I bet all of the people listening to this, that's where they want to be. They want to be flourishing. And you mentioned kind of the three kind of criteria that go into it. So the emotional well-being, the psychological well-being and the social well-being components. Now, over the course of someone's life, does that, the, the amount of flourishing someone have change? And is there kind of an innate component to this flourishing?
0: Yes, it is actually changeable. And that's a, that's a good thing, Sean. There is more and more evidence that interventions that are aimed at moving the needle around positive mental health symptoms, it, it is possible. And so it's not a static state. There's, the good news is you can move it around bad news is if you're not careful you will lose it but then here is the thing um the loss of flourishing should be a realistic thing when things change in your life right right it, it's it's a sign to to you and your loved ones that something has gone wrong it's time to reflect on it we need each other let's help each other um Right. And so I don't think we should worry so much about it um, that we will lose it, because if we are sensitive to it enough and treat it with the respect it deserves, we will respond to that loss. Now, here's the interesting thing. Now, turn that on its head. You know, I've been teaching this for so long now, and When it comes to mental illness, there are all kinds of people who meet the criteria for depression. And surveys and psychiatrists are supposed to distinguish between whether that's an expected reaction or an unexpected reaction. Those symptoms are expected or unexpected. You would expect people to feel and meet the criteria for depression when they've had to go through a pandemic for a year and a half when the whole world around them, or when they see uh, racial injustice and killing, right? Um, That should not be called a mental disorder when an external cause has changed the way you think and you feel and you function. Psychiatrists Mm -hmm. are only supposed to call something a clinical disorder is when your feelings, your behavior and your thinking have changed towards the depression end, but nothing has significantly changed in your life. Hence, it's an internal something that's causing this. We're not doing that right now. And we need to pay more attention to um, when people meet the criteria for not flourishing or for a mental disorder, and it's expected, we need to help them address the social conditions. They're causing that, not giving them pills that change and alter their neurochemistry and their brain structure. Mm-hmm. We should be
3: changing like their, their brain is doing what it should do.
0: Yeah, it is. It's telling them something is deeply wrong in this life, and life isn't fair. It's unjust. It's um, traumatic. You lose people you love, right? Yeah. But instead, we're medicating a whole class of people as if they have a mental disorder when they're responding normally.
3: Wow. That's going to give me a lot to think about moving forward. Um, and in general, you know, we are quite familiar with these risk factors for mental illness. And, you know, there's the whole diagnostic criteria to diagnose mental illness. Um, and we know that it's, there's a genetic component. But when we talk about flourishing, I wonder if there's a similar genetic component. Can we inherit mental well-being?
0: Yes, and Linda and Sean, yes, you asked that too. And and we have some very strong evidence that we published using a a large study of adult twins in the United States, but this is being replicated around the world. Um, Flourishing, it turns out, is just as heritable as something like depression and anxiety. Just as heritable. And yet, Less than 50% of the genetic variants associated with flourishing is shared in common with depression and anxiety and panic disorders. In our study, those were the three that we were looking at at the population level. What does that mean? It means that the 2 continue model is part of our genetic makeup. You can inherit a high genetic risk for depression, it doesn't mean you have also didn't inherit a high genetic disposition towards flourishing. So, that's an interesting. The presence of genetic risk doesn't preclude the presence of genetic potential to flourish. But by the same token, just because you didn't inherit a, you put it this way, it's more, you inherited a very low risk for mental disorders, It doesn't mean you've also inherited a high genetic potential to flourish. So the absence of genetic risk does not mean the presence of genetic potential. Here is where the new science that's about genes as they have any role when it comes to health conditions, at least when it comes to mental illness. There is very little, I'll say no evidence for genetic determinism, genes alone do not determines outcomes or phenotypes. It requires environment, and that's where the um, epigenome is such a fascinating Mm. area. And because a lot of the genetic potential for flourishing operates independent of genetic risk, my dream, and I hope I live long enough to see this, is that we have scholars (laughs) come out who devote their research to studying the environmental conditions that turn on whatever genetic potential we've inherited for flourishing, rather than just focusing on trying to avoid environments that activate genetic risk.
3: Right. How do we build environments that allow us to flourish?
0: Yes. And isn't it interesting, the positive stuff, the genes, the, a lot of gene, the genes for flourishing operate totally on their own, mm-hmm. separate from risk. And we're just built that way. We can feel good and bad at the same time. You can feel happy sadness or sad happy.
3: Right.
0: <laughs> right? It's, it's the same thing. When, and when I'm teaching my courses and I have seniors who are um, in spring semester, the closer we get to the end of our semester, they start feeling happy and sad at the same time. Mm. And so we're just built this way. Um, just because there's no sadness doesn't mean you're feeling happy. And just because you feel sad yes. doesn't mean you aren't all feeling happy. And that's just the brilliance of the two continuum model. It just—it's—it's it's right. what we're made up of.
4: Gordon, I'm, I'm gonna do my PhD now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You've decided.
2: <laughs> no, it's 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 pretty cool. And you mentioned like, even at the genetic level, there's evidence to suggest that it's literally a two continuum model such that, you know, this exists over here. This mm-hmm. exists over here. There can be interactions, but like the absence of uh, genetic material that predispose you to mental illness doesn't preclude you from flourishing or not flourishing. It's a totally different mechanism going on, even though there is interaction.
0: Yeah. I I just, I can't wait for the day where we think of, um, you know, just imagine all that potential lurking inside of all of our children. And we're so worried about whack-a-moaling all the problems down that we're not spending (laughs) much time enriching their lives. Even these kids at risk, you know, we could be doing things that unleash these, this genetic potential to flourishing that gives mm-hmm. them protective features against some of these adversities they're, that they're going to experience in abundance, but all of us, regardless, yeah. will experience. Right.
3: Let's just, get away
2: from the deficit models.
0: Exactly. Yes, we are more than
3: the things that are wrong with us.
0: Yes. And, and there's more wrong with this than the things we are willing to acknowledge, which is the absence. The, Oof.
3: Right? Here we go. There we
0: go. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the thing. I, just to make the point, we have two problems when it comes to the mental health and illness. We have too much mental illness, but we sure do not have enough mental health. And they are both big problems. And when it comes to prevalence, in terms of the total amount of the world's population, the bigger problem is the absence of good mental health. And if we don't deal with that, guess what? 2030 will come along, the World Health Organization, WHO, will pat itself on the back, and I will be depressed as hell because a prediction that didn't need to come true came true because we didn't do anything different so
3: moving forward in our discussion today, I would like us to take the next few minutes for us to explore how can we move forward? How do we build a flourishing society? And Dr. Keys, from our discussion today, you mentioned here and there different areas that we need to improve. And it kind of sounds to me like these are on different levels of like as, as, an, as individuals, as as a community, and then at the level of our health systems. And so in your view, this is a loaded question. I, I fully understand. Where do we begin to build a flourishing society?
0: Well, we have to deal in many, many countries with some would say it's the lowest lying fruit, but I think it's the biggest problem affecting the most people. Hmm. Economic inequality and racial injustice. And by economic inequality, I mean the things like the Gini coefficient, uh, the levels and disparities between the richest and the wealthiest and the amount of of wealth held by the richest and the the paltry amount. Economic inequality is affecting everyone, even the wealthiest people. There's plenty of evidence of showing this now. It's just that even even in the most economically unequal societies, yes, the wealthy live longer and healthier lives. But when you compare them, the wealthiest in the most unequal societies like the U.S. to just a country like the United Kingdom, which has lower economic inequality, our wealthiest um, are doing worse than the are doing no better than the poorest in the United Kingdom. So um, that shows you how far-reaching it is, but how much worse. Yeah. The people at the lowest 40% at, of income quintiles, their life expectancy has been declining in the United States. Wow. Hmm. Life expectancy has been declining and amongst the, the, the lowest two quintiles. And, there, and the gains of life expectancy have been paltry and small, even at the higher levels, because we're such an unequal society. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then later on that, racial injustice. I mean, we're going to address this because we have to address this. Yeah. Those two things, a society cannot function with those two things at its worst. And we are the epitome of it right now. And if political leaders and business. Business leaders are waking up to that. The bottom line hurts when a vast majority of the population, upwards of 80%, can't even afford to buy basic necessities. What's the point of producing and manufacturing all these products that are unattainable or put people in debt? Um, so we have a long way to go, but those are the, we would make great strides into that. And then don't get me started on education and equality. <laughs> there's no excuse no yeah. no excuse
3: Yeah,
2: that's yeah. another no. podcast <laughs> and it yes.
3: sounds sort of like you're saying how do we even begin to address mental health and mental illness when our society needs such a um, large scale restructuring
0: yes um, it, congress is, is arguing back and forth about infrastructure kind of. you know what the infrastructure of a great nation is Hmm. How well its people trust each other, think that life is fair, and are willing to work and cooperate. The greatest infrastructure is the people. And this government, I don't care, Democrat or Republican. Yeah, our physical infrastructure is woeful right now. But our human infrastructure, because our political leadership just tolerates this stuff, is even worse. So yeah. we need infrastructure, but we need an infrastructure bill that addresses and brings more people along in, into the into the education and the opportunities. And don't get me started in a higher education here. I am a professor at a wonderful university that, you know, costs way too much. I'm sorry, but it is. It's, it's ludicrous that our students are coming out with such debt just to get through undergraduate. So, yeah, education, income inequality, racial justice. Boy, we could go a long way.
4: <laughs> when we're talking about flourishing and we're talking about this two continuum model, people like I was alluding to earlier, they want to they want to know what they can do. They want to know what they can do today, for example, to build, you know, their building their resilience or enhancing their me- a positive mental health. How, how can people go about doing that?
0: Yeah. There's one study that I've, I'll often use in this regard. And I ended up reviewing it as an uh, outside of reviewer of for publication. And um, it's, it's called A Tuesday in the Life of Flourishers. And at the time, this was a graduate student. Um, who who became professor, but she published this study. And I was drawn to it because it was, one, it was a, a short term, but longitudinal. And second, it focused on six practical activities that we could all be doing on a weekly, if not daily basis. So every Tuesday, she would call up her participants and ask them, if they did any of these six things, and now I'm gonna test my memory again. One, did, <laughs> you, did you exercise in how much? Exercise. Second, did you socialize or connect with another person and people, your friends or family? Third, um, did you help somebody? In other words, engage in some pro-social behavior. Fourth, did you learn something new? Uh, fifth, um, did you play? And how much? Last. Oh, it's um, yeah, oh, wait a minute. It's on the tip of my tongue. Um, oh, I knew I, ha- I was going to miss one of them. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Don't worry. The listeners are going to have to go read the paper now. Yes.
0: yes. Okay. <laughs> Forgiving. That was
2: all your spiel to get them to actually go and read it <laughs> by pretending that you actually don't remember.
0: Yes. It's the test. Um, oh, oh, see, here I'm going to experience what they call the Zagarnik effect. I didn't complete it. This is going to bother me you even after we mm. okay, go yeah. But here was the thing. Now, if you did five, more go five out of the six, the only one thing that didn't Produce a better day. Now, right, she measured how good they felt at, at the end of that day and correlated the amount, whether they did the activity and what amount. If you exercised and exercised more, you didn't end up with any better day than those who didn't exercise or exercise very little. But you did more of the five things you played, learned something new, socialized. Oh, and the, the other thing was engaged in a spiritual activity.
4: That was the last
0: one I'd write. So if you did more of those five things, you had a much better day. And then what she did was break them out into three groups. One that met the criteria for depression. And then one group that wasn't depressed, but was flourishing. And the other group that wasn't depressed, wasn't flourishing. Now, if it didn't matter if you were one of those three. If you did very little of those five things, you didn't have a very good day. The good news was if you were depressed or if you were not flourishing, if you did more of those five things, you had a better day. But not flourishing and depressed were indistinguishable, right? You couldn't literally, you couldn't tell the difference, but at least if you did more of those five things, they had a better day. But if you were flourishing and you did this more of the same five things, you had a way better day than if you were not flourishing and did all those things, or if you were depressed. But then she was following them longitudinally, and here's what she found. I I called it the virtuous circle. So imagine you're flourishing, that's where we want everyone, because if you do those five things, you have a really good day. If you kept at it and did more of those five things, not only did you feel better, but two facets of your mindfulness increased over time. You became much more observant of the world around you and you became less emotionally reactive to things, especially when they were bad. And as you became more observant and less emotionally reactive, your positive mental health increased. And therefore Mm -hmm. you did more of those five things that led to more observance and less reactivity. And so the kick is this, Um, those five things, spiritual activity, socializing, helping somebody, learning something new, et cetera, are things that we can all do and appear to have a very promotive effect on us. So, in addition to trying to get your vitamins in the morning and eat your three meals, <laughs> you should play a little more, learn something new, help somebody else, etc., and wow. preferably on a daily basis.
3: Well, Doctor Keys, you've walked us through the two continuum model, and you've shared some takeaways that we can do as an individual and at the level of society. So, as we wrap up, what would you like our listeners? as let's say one takeaway they can gain from this conversation, what would you like them um, to know about positive psychology and mental health?
0: Human beings are wired to have what we call a negative um, bias. Mm -hmm. And by that, the negative bias is that when, when anything bad happens, or we hear anything, or we see anything bad, It's processed more deeply than than the equivalent good thing. And and it's processed that way because we're wired to do one thing at the beginning and immediately is to survive for another day, right? But that negativity bias needs to be overcome because for every one bad thing that draws your attention to it, over the equal one positive thing. In reality, it takes three or more positive things for every one negative thing. And so Epicurus said this, we need constant reminders in order to be focused and stay focused on pursuing happiness and and a pleasant life. Why? Because evidence shows we need to be reminded daily to put a lot more work and attention on the positive. Otherwise, what's the point of living and surviving one more day if you're not going to add quality to the quantity? And that's something I always say. So the negativity bias is there to give you one more day. That's quantity. But what's the point of adding another day of life if you're not going to prioritize the positive? It sounds great, but it's going to take work. It takes work yeah. and focus.
2: Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Keys. This was a fantastic, uh, enlightening conversation. This is sort of a discourse that is not popular, and I know you referenced it yourself. You've been talking about this for a while, and then we didn't even really get into You did touch on a little bit about how COVID-19 uh, might influence where we go in terms of the landscape of mental illness and mental health. But this is something that we should definitely reshape our thinking about how we think about this and in turn how we address the problem. Uh so thanks for sharing your knowledge and expertise. Uh we definitely appreciate that.
3: Yes, thank you. I definitely enjoyed this conversation and I hope you enjoyed your time on the podcast.
0: I did. I appreciate it and thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.